My text this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The same text that I had last week. This is uh, the record that we have of Christ's first public sermon. I'm sure it wasn't his first public sermon, but this is uh, the first one that we have recorded. I imagine that it was uh, quite a bit longer than this, but the summary is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So last week I talked about repentance unto life, and this week I want to talk about what does it mean to believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news or the good message that God has done everything that is necessary for sinners to be reconciled to him. And now everyone who repents and believes the gospel will be made right with God, both now and forever. And uh, so last week we saw that one, one of the conditions of becoming a beneficiary of the gospel is that you should repent. And repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin does with grief and hatred turn from his sin, turn to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, what does it mean to believe the gospel? Well, another word for belief or believe is faith. Sometimes the word can be translated believe. Sometimes it can be translated dutiful obedience, and sometimes it is just translated faith, believe, dutiful obedience, and faith. So what is saving faith is the question that we will be dealing with this morning. What is saving faith? And uh, the answer is saving faith is a saving grace. So it is a grace. It's something that God gives. It's not something that we deserve. It is a grace that results in salvation. So it is a saving grace. And in when we have this saving faith, then we receive Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. And we rest upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. So we, we receive him. It is not fundamentally, faith is not fundamentally believing facts. You must believe certain facts in order to receive Jesus because we don't know Jesus through uh, face-to-face literal interaction. We know Jesus because of things that are said about him in the Bible. Uh, But you can believe, uh, I guess you could believe everything the Bible says about Jesus and still fall short of receiving Christ. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Uh, so it, saving faith is when you receive a person and you rest upon him. Resting upon him means that you stop trying to, uh, you stop trying to save yourself through some other means. You stop trying to please God through your own good works as, as the way of primary reconciliation with him. 
once you have received Jesus Christ, of course you're going to try to please him with your good works, but you've come to understand that it's not your good works that form the basis of your acceptance with God. I've told you before that Christianity is the only religion in the world whereby we get to go to a good place when we die because of the good things that someone else has done. And uh, so when we receive Christ, then we also rest from our own attempts to save ourselves through religious works or good works, and we rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And the way that he is offered to us in the gospel is that he is offered to us as a priest who teaches us. uh, He's offered to us as a prophet, I meant to say. He's offered to us as a prophet who teaches us the will of God for our salvation. And so when you receive Jesus, uh, your, your opinion on things is not the final determiner as to what you believe to be true or false. You recognize that your opinion on things and your capacity for figuring out the truth has been maimed by sin and that you have a, a, built-in, a built-in leaning towards lies. And uh, so recognizing that, you say, Jesus, I no longer trust myself to figure out the truth Instead, I'm looking to you to teach me the truth. This is the way Jesus is offered to us in the gospel. He's offered as a prophet who teaches us the will of God for our salvation. And then Jesus is also offered to us in the gospel as a priest who does two main jobs. A priest will offer sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And a priest also will pray for his people. And so when you receive Jesus as your priest, then you are saying, I want your sacrifice offered on the cross to cover my sins. I want your sacrifice on the cross to cleanse me of my sins. Not just secure heaven for me. Not just help me to evade hell. But I want your sacrifice to cleanse me from the way of thinking that persistently leads me away from you and makes me liable to the judgment of God. God's Word teaches that in order for sin to be forgiven, blood has to be shed. And throughout the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it was just one example after another of saying, if, if you're going to be right with God, somebody has got to die. And then all of that Old Testament teaching points to Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God. And when he died and shed his blood, that was the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. And so when you receive Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel, he is offered as a sacrifice for sin. And so when, uh, when you have saving faith, then you're no longer trying to atone for your own sin. You're no longer counting on your own prayers to make you right with God. Instead, you're resting upon Jesus Christ as your high priest. This is the way he's offered to you in the gospel a prophet to teach you the will of God, a priest to 
offer a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and who makes continual intercession for us. And Christ is also not only a prophet, not only a priest, but he's also a king. And uh, if you receive Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel, then you receive him as someone who has the right to tell you what to do, and you heartily concur with his kingship. You're saying, I want you to rule over me. I've made a mess of things. It's, it's, it's going to get worse. I've done a poor job of ruling over myself. I, I give myself away. I receive you as my king. I need you to protect me from my sin. I need you to protect me from Satan. I need you to shield me from the wrath of God. I need you to subdue me because there are still things inside of me that like, like a, a rebel faction in a territory that is in rebellion against the king. There's that in my heart. I, I need you as the king to quell the rebellion of my heart, to subdue me to yourself. I need you to restrain and conquer all the enemies that I have, and, and they're your enemies too. I'm on your side now. I want you to be my king. This is the way Christ is offered to us in the gospel as a prophet and a priest and as a king. And saving faith is a saving grace whereby we receive Jesus like this, a prophet, a priest, and a king. And we rest upon him like this as he is offered to us in the gospel. A number of us have uh, recently traveled internationally. I know in Ecuador they use uh, dollars as the, as the monetary unit. What about in Guatemala? Do they use dollars or do they use, they use dollars in Guatemala as well? Well, maybe you've traveled to China or some other place where you have to exchange money. Uh, I was in an airport last night and uh, was at a place where there were booths that were set up for exchanging money. Whatever, whatever currency you have come into the United States with, you're going to need to change it into dollars if you're going to do business here. Faith is something like that. Faith is the currency of God's kingdom. When you come out of the world into God's kingdom, you, you don't get in unless you have faith. Faith is not only the way you get in, faith is also the way you get on. It's the way that you prosper in the kingdom of God. Uh, when, we are first, when we are first converted, when we first receive Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel, there's still a lot of psychological wreckage, there's still a lot of emotional wreckage, there's still a lot of mental garbage that's in our hearts. We have received Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, but he doesn't instantly clean all the garbage out of our mind. He doesn't instantly heal us of all the psychological and emotional damage that we, have in, in, that we bring to him. And most of us are just beat down like an armadillo on the highway when we come to, to, come to Jesus. God often has to do something like that in our lives before we are willing to turn away from uh, the filthy garbage that we love so much and turn to his, his pure offering of salvation. Um, but he doesn't immediately cleanse us of all of that. One of the ways that the Lord gets glory is by progressively 
teaching us to think more and more in harmony with Him and to uh, rest emotionally in Him more and more. And as that happens, then we become more like Jesus. We are transformed more into His likeness. Um, And that transformation takes place through faith. We continue to see things that are, not, that are not right in us because we are seeing the perfect standard as it's displayed in what God has revealed to us about himself, most notably in the Bible. And so as we come to church and you hear preaching and teaching, as you read the Bible, you're confronted with ideas that uh, seem a little strange and you, you realize, I'm not entirely in harmony with that. And so, by the grace of God, you pray, Lord, make me more like that. That's what confession of sin is. It's seeing, here are ways that I am not fully receiving and resting in Jesus. Here are ways that I'm not fully in line with the, with the marching orders of the king. And so, Lord, cleanse me of this. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That cleansing often takes place through the mental exercise of seeing, here the Lord is saying something about himself and about my duty to him that I'm not living up to and I need to. And so... Uh, faith works that way. Faith is the way that you get into the kingdom of God because until you begin to agree with God, you, you will remain God's enemy. And faith is agreeing with God. And faith is the way that you get on with God in the kingdom. Faith is also the way that you enjoy fellowship with God. God is patient with us in our in our newborn immaturity. Just like you moms are with those newborn babies. And you have to do everything for them. Um, But you hope that in a couple of years, you're not having to do everything for them. You'll still have to do a whole lot. And then you're hoping that by the time they're five or six years old, that They're more and more able to bathe themselves, able to dress themselves. And so you don't keep on doing all of that for them. You're letting them get their their feet under them, so to speak, and to learn to do things on their own. You don't want to be an overprotective mom or an overprotective dad that just keeps a baby a baby all of his life. God treats us the same way. When we're first converted, he's very, very impatient with our messes and with our, with our immaturity. And, uh, you know, he often will take us on his lap and rock us to sleep and, and uh, dandle us on his knee and treat us with, with such, well, the way that a father would treat a newborn. But then he sets us down on the ground. If you're going to learn how to crawl, you're going to have to get dirty a little bit. I have to take the risk that you're going to pick stuff off the floor and eat it that you're not supposed to eat. And um, so that, that's how the Lord, how do, we, how do we make that progress from crawling to toddling around to walking to running? It's by faith. And then 
some of you have experienced that by the time your child gets to be a certain age, you're still the mom, you're still the dad, but you're also friends. The relationship has grown so that you really enjoy being with this kid. And uh, hopefully that just progresses as the child grows and has children of her own or has children of his own, that you, the, the father-daughter, the mother-son relationship uh, is still there. It's still beautiful, but it is an enhancement to a real friendship. You enjoy spending time together. You have so much in common. You think, you think similarly about important issues. That's the basis of friendship, and that's what happens as we grow in faith in our relationship with God. It's no longer just little baby that he's changing our diaper and feeding us a bottle. But as we grow in faith, then he, he enjoys us and we enjoy him. And all of that progress is made by faith. And so it's virtually impossible to overestimate the importance of faith in the Christian life. And uh, so we do well to know what faith is, and uh, as is often the case, it's helpful for us to examine some ideas that parade as faith but are really not faith. Let's suppose that uh, a friend of yours said, I have someone who is visiting me from another country, and he does not speak one word of English. And I would like for him to have uh, some cultural experiences while he's here, and so I would like you to take him to a basketball game. And so you agree, you take this person. He's an adult, but he doesn't speak one word of English. And so at the basketball game, uh, he looks at you, and he kind of gives the universal sign of what is this, and you say, basketball. He repeats it back, basketball. He looks at the gymnasium, basketball. He said, no, not basketball, basketball. You kind of show him, this is the basketball. And uh, so he, he goes to courtside, gets a basketball. He says, basketball game. No, that's not the game. That's the thing that the game is played with. He doesn't understand very well. The game is an exciting game. Everyone is screaming and yelling. He looks around, basketball. All this excitement, it's basketball. No, that's, that's not quite right. You see, what he's doing is he, he is confusing basketball game with the thing that is used to play basketball or the place where basketball is played or the emotions that often accompany a good basketball game. But none of those things are the game. The game is those ten athletes out there competing against one another, trying to win. And and, uh, even, even the rules of the game itself don't completely explain basketball. 
I mean, those of you who have played that or some other sport, you know there's, there's something that just kind of enters in that it's, it seems like it's more than the sum of its parts. And so using that as a, a paradigm for trying to understand what faith is, there are some people who think that just the facts about Jesus are, are faith. But no, the facts about Jesus are like the basketball. You use the basketball to play the game. You use the facts about Jesus to receive Jesus, but the fact you can believe the facts about Jesus and still be lost. Or some people make this, the mistake of our, our non-English speaking friend who think that all of the excitement that goes along with basketball game, that's, that's basketball game. And there are some people who think all the emotional accompaniments that go along with a religious life or being in in a religious environment. Surely that is what faith is. No. Faith is is not the emotions. uh, Emotions often attend faith, but that's not what faith itself is. Uh, The person, our our non-English speaking friend, might notice that one team is especially more confident than the other, and he comes to think, oh, basketball game. It really means confidence. Um, Strong optimism. You've got to believe that things are going to turn out good. And and no, again, that's not the basketball game. That helps, but that's not the basketball game. And so also a strong optimism is not faith. It's not just thinking everything's going to turn out okay. Somehow or another, everything's going to turn out okay. No, none of that is faith. Well, do we have a a definition of faith anywhere in the Bible? We come really close in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Why don't you turn there and let's see what it says here in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. I don't think that this is a formal definition of faith. Uh, I think that this is more of a a description of the way that faith works. You've heard me say many times that faith is believing what God has said, especially when the only reason that you have for believing it is because God said it. And then in recent months, I've added this addendum with the full purpose of obeying what God says. I do think that that's an essential part of of saving faith, that you believe what God has said because God has said it, and you intend to conform your life to it in in every way that that is possible. But here are some important ways in the Bible that the Bible says that faith works. And uh, I don't think my watch is working, and I want to keep track of the time, so I guess it is working. I've got more time to preach than I thought. Uh, so, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, let's see what the Bible says here about faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And I think that that is a, a decent translation, but I don't think it's the best translation. I think that the best translation is the one that some of you have memorized if you grew up hearing the King James Version of the Bible. Faith is the substance 
of things hoped for. Now, I understand why the ESV translators went with assurance, and maybe I'll get to that in a few minutes if I don't forget. But I, I do think that the best, the best translation is substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, faith is a little bit of something better that's coming later. Faith is a little bit. So faith is the substance. There are things that we hope for, and faith gives us a little foretaste of those things. It is an engagement with those things that we hope for before we actually get the whole blessing. So uh, you've probably been to Baskin-Robbins, and, uh, you know, they advertise that they have 31 flavors, and they also have these little plastic or wooden spoons that they'll give you a little sample of something that you want to try. I had a friend uh, when I was a teenager who tried all 31, and then she never bought anything because she was, she was, she was full. Uh, but she tried all 31. So, but when, when you get that little, that little plastic spoon of the ice cream that you want to try at Baskin-Robbins, it's the substance of things hoped for. It's a little bit of something that you hope you get a whole lot of later on. That's what faith is. Faith is a little bit of something that we're going to get a whole lot more of later. Well, what are some of the things that we hope for when, when we are thinking spiritually. Well, we're hoping for forgiveness of sins. And faith gives you a little taste of what it means to have your sins forgiven and a little taste of what it is going to be like when you're completely free from sin. Obviously, we're a long way from being completely free from sin right now, but you are no longer under the dominion of sin the way that you once were. And so you're getting a little taste of something that is going to be, you're going to get the big ice cream cone later on, but you're getting a little taste of it now. We hope for a, a pleasant, friendly relationship with God, what the Bible calls being reconciled to God. We get a little taste of that through faith. Through faith, we begin to agree with God. And we begin to enjoy God's fellowship, not the way that the big ice cream cone is going to give us, but it's a whole lot better than the way it used to be. When you, when you dreaded the thought of someone talking to you about Jesus or talking to you about God, even, even if you grew up a good church boy or a good church girl like, like I did, the boy, uh, when I grew up a good church boy, I still just kind of dreaded my dad getting specific with me and talking to me about my spiritual condition. And uh, because I wasn't right with God. Well, faith gives you a little taste of what it means to be completely right with God. So that we don't have to come to him and say, I messed up again. We have to do that now. Father, please forgive me. I'm sorry I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I, I, I feel that it has interrupted our fellowship. Please forgive me. But there's coming a time when we will not have to talk that way to God anymore. We will be made perfect in holiness. 
But faith gives us a little taste of what it's going to be, that, that really good ice cream cone of being made perfect in holiness. Another thing that we hope for in the future when we think about heaven is uh, enjoying the fellowship, enjoying a, the, a perfect society. And we don't encounter that now. I look around on this congregation and I just look into the faces of people that I love so much. And I look, see people looking back at me with, with love and appreciation. This is a little taste of a big ice cream cone that's coming later. How did you get here? You got here by faith. Why do you, why do you get along so well with these people? It's by faith. There are varying degrees of education. Some people are white-collar workers. Some people are blue-collar workers. Some people are not employed. Uh, various uh, economic uh, strata represented here. There are some people who make a lot of money every year, and there are some people who make almost no money every year. And here we are, one big happy family. How'd that happen? Faith. It's a little taste of something that's coming later on. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And then notice what it says next about faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the conviction of things not seen. There are, there are important ideas that we are not going to arrive at through the normal pathways of reason. We are never, through a mathematical formula or a scientific formula or a logical formula, we are never going to arrive at some of the most important truths that are essential for our being reconciled to God. But by faith, we believe what God has said about these things. And the invisible things become real to us. If you were old enough, when you got converted, old enough to have lived in the world for a while, then you can probably remember the way you thought about Christians and the way that they talked about things. Things that are invisible, things that we had never encountered. And I think that some of us had a tendency to put them into the same category as uh, the people who wear aluminum foil on their heads so that the government won't figure out what they're thinking. We just thought, these people are crazy. And uh, they, they, act, they act like all this stuff is real. And we just thought, I think they're all faking it, or they're deceived in some way. I think they're all faking it. And then the Lord works faith in your eyes, faith in your heart, and then your eyes are opened to realities that you could never have figured out on your own. And you thought that they were wacky. You thought that they were crazy. And now you are one of those people. Now you're someone who is seeing the unseen things, and you are sure that these unseen things are true. Faith is the means by which you have accessed these unseen realities. The most important truths in the universe are not displayed for our deciphering 
They are revealed for our believing. I think that the Bible itself is a a good example of that. Uh, A systematic theology is a book that gathers what the Bible says about various topics and orders them in a systematic way. So in a section of a systematic theology, there will be a section about the Bible. Here's what the, here's what the Bible says about the Bible, and there will be various verses of Scripture that are examined, and the writer of the systematic theology will explain the implications of what these Scriptures mean. And then there will be a section on God. Who is God? God exists in three persons. And then there will be a section on the Spirit and so on. And I like systematic theologies. I think they're very useful. But the Bible is not one. The Bible instead is a collection mostly of stories and literature. And through through these stories and through letters and through literature, there are... There are secret things that are revealed that cannot be reduced to to formulaic representation. It's better than a systematic theology. And it is it's through through the Holy Spirit applying the things that are written in the scriptures that we come to have faith and we start to see these unseen things. I remember some Saturday afternoon, probably 25 years ago, I turned on the TV for some reason, and there was one of these B-grade movies that was on. And uh, the, the theme of the movie was that there were some really dangerous people on the earth, and the only way that you could see them was if you had these special glasses. And so a really, a really beautiful woman, maybe one of these dangerous aliens, and and uh, But she's really pretty. You put on the glasses and, mm, no, she's dangerous. And uh, faith is like that. N- not, that you, not that you put on the glasses of faith and you just see the bad stuff that you couldn't see before. You put on the glasses of faith and you see the good stuff that you couldn't see before. It is the substance of things hoped for and it's the evidence of things not seen. Now look at verse 2. It says, For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is getting ready to talk about a number of these people of old. Now, you children who have uh, been in Sunday school at Bullet Lick could probably answer these questions out loud, but let's don't do it out loud. If I were to ask you, what is Noah famous for, you would all know Noah built the ark. And if I were to say, what's something that Abraham did that he's famous for? Probably the first thing that would come to the mind of the Sunday school children is, well, he he almost offered his son Isaac in obedience to God's command. Uh, What did Samson do? And we remember what Samson did. What about Joseph? We know the story. So is this, are doing these things, is that what God was pleased with? Was God pleased primarily because Noah built the ark? Was he pleased primarily because Samson killed the Philistines? The answer is 
No, that's not the main reason. The main reason that God was pleased with all of these people is because they did what they did because they believed God. It was before they did these praiseworthy, laudable things, they had an attitude that believed God and was eager to cooperate with God. And when they cooperated with God, then they did these wonderful things. So contrary to what the evidence may seem to us on the surface, that, that Abraham was commended for offering Isaac and so on through the list, instead of that, what verse 2 tells us is that this is what the ancients were commended for. They were commended because they have faith. And then uh, this, all I'm going to read in, in uh, chapter 11, concludes in verse 3. By faith we understand... Oh, let's wait. Just stop there a minute. Faith leads to understanding. So faith is not always, I'm going to believe this simply because God says it. Often God will take those elements that we have believed simply because God says it, and He coordinates it with other things, and we come to understand so there is a time in, in child rearing where if you tell your child not to do something and their friends ask them, why can't you do that? The very best answer that they can give is because dad said so. So as, as Doug Wilson has said, for a few years your parenting needs to look like a benevolent dictatorship. You, you are the boss, and you, you don't need to sit there and reason with a three-year-old as to why he cannot throw his peas on the floor. Mommy has to pick that up later on. The dog will come by and eat them. No, you don't need to go into all that. No. Why not? Mommy said so. And that is, that's the way faith starts. But then later on, you know, when you're, when you're talking to a 10-year-old and the 10-year-old says, why can't I go spend the night with this friend? Then they may be old enough for you to say, here are concerns that I have about you spending the night at that friend's house. And you may not say everything that you would have said to a 16-year-old, but you you reveal, here's more of the reason on why we have these standards in our household. And that's the way that God does with faith. So once we, once we appropriate these unseen things, then God often synthesizes them together and helps us to understand why things are the way they are. Not perfectly, but like that little taste of ice cream at Baskin-Robbins, now we see in part, but at least we're seeing in part. We're not seeing as fully as we will one day see, but by faith we do come to understand. And we understand things that we wouldn't know unless God had revealed them. That's in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. How do we know that? None of us were there. There's nobody to witness and tell us, yep, I saw it, that's the way that it happens. We know it simply because God has said it. So that what, was, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
So I hope and pray that this gives, gives us all a better understanding of what faith is, a better appreciation of how it works in the Christian life to, to issue us into the Christian life, to help us to get on in the Christian life, to have fellowship with God, even now, faith gives us a little taste of something that we hope for that we're going to get a lot more of later on. That's a good sound, <clears throat> real good sound. Uh, so years ago, I was about 17 or 18 years old. I had, I had not been preaching long, and my dad asked me if I would preach a series of meetings at the church where he was pastor a weekend revival meeting. And so in preparation for that weekend revival meeting, I decided I was going to go out into the woods for a few days and fast and pray, seeking God's blessing. I grew up at the edge of the Wayne National Forest. So there are just thousands and thousands of acres where you can wander around in the woods and never, never be curious about whose property you're on. And uh, so I, I picked a place in the woods. I looked on a map that uh, there were no houses for miles around. And I said, I'm going to go right in the middle of those woods. And so I had my dad uh, drop me off at the edge of those woods and told him, pick me up after, you know, I told him how many days. And uh, so all I had with me was a single shot twenty two rifle, two jugs of water, and a sleeping bag. And uh, Matthew Henry's commentary, a couple other books that I still remember. So I carry all this stuff out into the woods. I thought that I would find a rock house to sleep under because there are a lot of cliffs and rock houses in that part of the country. I never found one. And so the weather was nice. First night, I just rolled out my sleeping bag and slept on the ground under the, under the canopy of the trees and whatever stars poked through. It was the next day or the day after that that the weather grew dark and cloudy. The day was far spent. It was not long until it would be pitch dark because there were no lights around. I don't think I even had a flashlight, not sure. And I thought, you know, I'm going to cut my trip short. I'm going to get soaking wet. Uh, I don't have a tent. Uh, my sleeping bag will be soaked through and the rest of the trip will be ruined because I, I don't have any way to keep dry. And so I decided that I was going to uh, exit the woods. As I think I had two or three miles to hike. And, uh, but it was getting dark, and so I began to jog. Gathered up all my stuff and began to jog out of the woods. And uh, for, for some reason, after a few minutes, I, I, I thought, you better check your compass. And so I pulled out my compass it was, a, it was a nice compass that a guy had lent to me. And, uh, but I didn't think the compass was working right because I was just sure that I was heading southwest. And the compass said, that's northeast. And I needed to go southwest. So I looked at this compass. I turned around. And in order for me to go southwest, I had to go that way. Just 180 degrees 
opposite to the way that I was going. And I just thought, this cannot be right. Everything inside of me was saying, that's southwest. But I had to make a decision. Am I right? Or is this compass right? And I thought, let's follow the compass. And I turned around and followed the compass And it was just amazing. I came out within 100 yards of the place where I went in. The compass was right. Now that compass represents the truths of the Word of God regarding your life and regarding what needs to happen in your life. You may 100% think, this is the way that I need to go. This is the right thing. I just feel it. I just know it. And you look at the compass of the Word of God and it says, you are pointed 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to believe your feelings? Or are you going to believe God's compass? Believe God's compass. I promise you it's right. If your goal is to get out of these woods and get home to heaven, follow the compass. But in order to do that, you've got to give up guiding your own life and begin to live by faith. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.